Welcome, Welcome to the to East, East Traumacast. Trauma this program was brought to you by the Educational Resources Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Advancing science, fostering relationships, and building careers. Now, on to the Traumacast. Before we get started, I'd like to say thank you to Hemanetics for their generous and unrestricted grant for the Educational Resources Committee and TraumaCast. I'm Lauren Judas, an acute care surgeon at West Virginia University. I'm Jeremy Levin, trauma surgeon at Methodist Hospital in Indianapolis, Indiana. I'm Rachel Choron. I'm a trauma surgeon here at Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School in New Brunswick, New Jersey. I'm Mike Rodomsky. I'm a trauma surgeon at Grant Medical Center in Columbus, Ohio. I'm really excited about this discussion with you, Rachel, because duodenal injuries is one of those things where I think everyone has an opinion and most people don't have just a ton of duodenal injuries in their back pocket, right? Like it is a rare injury. Like I'm sure you've had that you have that similar kind of thing as well. How many duodenal injuries have you taken care of? I think maybe on average two a year would be the would be the most. I'm not sure. Rachel, take us through like, like how did your interest start for duodenal injuries and what's your thoughts about them? You know, I think it's an interesting subject to me and these are interesting patients because these patients tend to stay with you for a little while in the hospital. You often have to manage complications for them as an inpatient and outpatient. And so they become the talked about patient on the service for a while. And so I think even though they're rare injuries, um, they do kind of become prominent in our minds. I trained at Hopkins for fellowship. I did two years there. I was lucky enough to work with some really incredible mentors, Dr. Efron being one of them. And he had trained under Dr. Cameron. So his little subspecialty in trauma was really hepatobiliary trauma. He was a great teacher to me. So I think my passion kind of stemmed from his passion on the topic. So initially I started working on some projects with him, just kind of review projects on injury patterns and things like that. And so that kind of sparked my interest and, and that's what led to the multi-center trial that I, I recently completed. But so let's go back to your training at, um, at Hopkins with Efron. How many duodenal injuries do you think you've had like during the course of your training and fellowship and, and into being an attending? I think pretty similar to Mike, several a year at Hopkins, we probably saw a little bit more than that. You know, like I said, they just kind of stuck out in my mind and are particularly interesting. For some reason, everything comes in threes. We just had three duodenal injuries this past month. So it's it's very timely to talk about all of this. But I certainly, uh, you know, I mentioned to you earlier, I've certainly spent many more hours researching this subject than surgically repairing these patients. <laughs> so <laughs> I, will, I will give that disclaimer. <laughs> it seems like it's an injury pattern that has lots of described ways of managing without a concrete evidence. Whenever there's a number of different ways of managing one, one injury pattern usually means that there's no one good way. Is that mm -hmm. your experience? Or when you were at Hopkins, was it that all of the duodenal injuries were managed in, one, in the same manner? You know, I think... Now, one of the things that I was most inspired by was looking at the patients that are primarily repaired versus undergo these more complex repairs. Each patient seems unique because of their injury pattern and all the other things you have to deal with in the abdomen. So I think that's one of the reasons that we always tend to have a lot of conversation about these people. 
And I think some of the literature now this this new trial will suggest that we should be trying to do primary repair, tension-free repairs as much as possible. So what are the kind of things, I mean, I can imagine coming from Hopkins and the history there with compatibility or duodenal stuff, as you kind of alluded to, what are the things that you've tried in the past or that having been around those that were trained by Cameron and stuff like that have tried? And what's your, your perspective on those things? So I think, you know, when we think about duodenal injuries in general, you know, why would we do anything more complex than primary repair alone? And I think the thought process is really that you're trying to protect a leak if it happens. So you're really thinking about the patients who might ultimately have a complication and how to allow those patients to have the best outcome possible. If you have a duodenal injury, let's say, and you're thinking about a repair type outside of primary repair alone, Some of the other repair strategies historically have been pyloric exclusion and gastrojejunostomy, for example. And you're still left with a duodenal injury, so you're still going to be repairing that or draining that or addressing that in some way. And then other, you know, techniques that have been described in the past are triple drain techniques, internal intraluminal drains to try and help that duodenal injury heal. And again, you're still going to be repairing that injury or something to that effect. I think one of the other strategies can be duodenectomy and duodeno-duodenostomy. And that can really um, fall under the primary repair and just doing a tension-free repair, essentially. And then I think when you get into more complex repair strategies that might not be amenable to to some of those other techniques, uh, you're talking about a duodeno-jejunostomy, like a Roux-en-Y duodeno-jejunostomy, or a Whipple, depending on on what kind of injury pattern you have. So... Would you mind just kind of breaking it down for me, uh, you know, as if I was a a third year medical student, if I have a, a, a patient that has a duodenal injury, what other injury patterns do I have to be worried about? And are most of these patients blunt injuries? Are they penetrating injuries? And and what else am I concerned about uh, that is going to affect the repair? So most of the patients we see um, with duodenal injuries are from penetrating injuries. So 75 to 80% of, of these injuries that require surgical intervention are from penetrating injuries. That's one thing to consider. And then, you know, like we kind of talked about earlier, concomitant injuries are very common with this patient population. And so if you think about the anatomy around the duodenum, There's four segments of the duodenum. Um, The first is uh, in the peritoneal cavity, two, three, and four in the retroperitoneal cavity. And so you think about the structures surrounding those, pancreas, SMA, SMV, and any injuries to those surrounding structures are going to impact your surgical repair. When you talk about triple two drainage or things like pyloric exclusion, do you mind kind of what is a triple tube drainage? Because some of these things are now kind of historical, right? I don't know. I haven't met anyone that's done some of these things, right? What is, let's start with triple tube drainage. What is that? So triple tube drainage is like you mentioned, kind of more historical technique. Uh, the thought process is that you want to protect this uh, duodenal injury that you've repaired um, or ideally try and repair. And so you do that with three tubes. One would be proximal in the stomach. So um, a gastrostomy tube. And then one would be distal for feeding. So a jejunostomy tube where you, you can give uh, tube feeds past the point of the injury. And then the third is actually creating an enterotomy in the jejunum just past the duodenum and feeding up a, a tube in a retrograde fashion to drain all the enteric contents um, coming from the duodenum near the injury site. 
it just sounds crazy. <laughs> like, let's go punch more <laughs> holes into the human being. That's how I feel too. <laughs> what about things like pyloric exclusion? Where, do, where does that come into play? So I think the thought process behind pyloric exclusion was always that you're protecting this repair. What you're doing is you're actually excluding the pylorus. And so you're creating a blockage where gastric contents, food, gastric secretions don't enter the duodenum. So you're ligating that pylorus either with suture or with a non-cutting stapler. And then you need to create an enteric diversion. So you'll do a gastrojejunostomy to allow for a new pathway for gastric contents. That does reconstitute with time, and it's it's thought to reconstitute in about eight eight weeks or so. Take me through that. You make a hole in the stomach and, and you suture it, or do you just put a stapler across that? How, how do you actually do it if you're if you're looking at performing a pyloric exclusion? Yeah, I think there's multiple techniques. I think some people just do a running uh, suture line across the pylorus. I think you can also use something like a TA stapler that's non-cutting. You know, there should be um, reconstitution of flow, although we staple across other things, uh, and I'm not sure <laughs> we expect those things to reconstitute flow. So <laughs> it doesn't seem like it, that that should happen, but. Um... What about the Whipple? You know, the trauma Whipple is this thing that's, it's like this mythical thing, right? And usually if you're doing a trauma Whipple, things are not going great. Yeah, you know, I've always heard that if the Whipple has been done for you, then that's when you're going to pursue your Whipple. So if you have a, you know, multi- GSW patient and you already have injuries to the head of the pancreas, the bile duct has been disrupted at the ampulla. Um, You have, you know, massive disruption of D2. That's your thought process of those patients that you're somehow your your hand is essentially forced to do a Whipple in. Um, And, you know, I have done a few of these with um, help, thank goodness. And, um, you know, I think that these are very challenging patients. Um, there's been quoted uh, mortality for these patients for about 33%. Um, so you do have survivors from this patient population. So I think if it's something that needs to be done, it's something that should be pursued. You know, some of the things I was I was lucky enough to learn in my training was thinking about doing the initial resection um, in the index operation if the patient is reasonably stable enough to undergo the pancreatic oduodenectomy at that part. And some of the considerations for that are that on the take back, you know, after MTP and resuscitation, you have pretty significant edema near the ligament of trites and SMV. All the branches there are going to be engorged and it'll make the dissection much more challenging. So I think if the dissection can be done on the first index operation, that's usually preferable. You can leave wide drains at that time, just in case you have any pancreatic leak to minimize you know, exposure of that fluid to the area. And then ideally on your take back is when you'll do your reconstruction and your, your three anastomoses. I can see why why you could be so interested in this because it just seems like there's multiple different ways of addressing these injuries, which means that you know it's something that's ripe for studying. Is that the same way you felt or? Absolutely. Absolutely. So now take us through as you, I don't think anyone's going to be surprised given that you got the podium at East, but you did a East multicenter trial on this exact thing. So walk us through the idea for coming up with that study, which I think Mike kind of just alluded to. And then what were your thoughts on the construction of it, your endpoints, um, what you wanted to learn from it? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think like you guys were just talking about, because there's so many different options about how to 
repair these injuries. Um, there hasn't been a, really a definitive study that looked at the patients who actually leaked and whether they were protected by these um, adjunctive techniques beyond like attention-free repair, beyond a duodenectomy with primary repair. So that was kind of what I was curious about. And you know, in the last 10, 15 years, there's definitely been a push in the literature towards a primary tension-free repair if you if you can do it. And Dr. Paula Ferrata had recently done a multi-center trial, I think with 13 sites through the Pan American Society and looked at 372 patients with duodenal injuries. So that I thought was a really great paper that gave us a much bigger case series to, to work on and to see these patients better described. So that's kind of where this you know, interest kind of stemmed from and the questions that I had. And so what kind of leak rate are we talking about? So if you do a tension-free primary repair, you debride the edges of the duodenum, what kind of leak rate is there? So, you know, it depends on the paper you look at. In our multi-center trial, we uh, managed to get 35 participating level one centers to contribute data. And so we had uh, 861 patients. And of those 861 patients, there is... 43 patients who leaked uh, in the duodenal primary repair group alone versus 70 that leaked in the repair group that also got these complex repairs with adjunctive measures. So it's like 5% and 10%. So from your vantage point then, like it, to me that on face value, it clearly seems like, well, simple primary tension-free repair is better than complex stuff. Were there any surprising findings in the complex group or anything that you didn't expect to go with a confirmation bias that tension-free is probably better? To answer the question previously, the um, overall leak rate for the whole population was 13% for all comers. And then the leak rate for the primary repair was 8%, and the leak rate for the complex repairs was 21%. Um, so we did see a significant wow. difference. So actually more patients that had the complex repairs leaked. And I think that's not unexpected because when you look at the population as a whole, that pet patient population is essentially sicker. So they had, you know, lower blood pressure, higher injury severity score, more commonly had massive transfusion protocol, higher injury grades, things like that. So it's it's not surprising that more of those patients leaked. But then, you know, I think the initial research question is what happens to the patients that leak? When you compare the patients that leaked with the primary repairs alone to those who actually had the complex repairs, was there a difference in outcomes? Because that's the whole purpose of protecting these repairs is, you know, will there be difference? And there wasn't. So we didn't see that the complex repairs actually had an effect on leak recovery, essentially. So there is no difference in the number of operations they had, how long they had their drains, uh, how long they were for MPO, the need for additional IR drains, hospital length of stay, readmissions, or mortality. So while we saw a huge difference in that initial all-comers population between complex and primary, there wasn't a difference on the back end for the patients who actually leaked. So in that primary repair group, doesn't matter where in the duodenum they, they were injured, or were you able to suss that out based on the, the data given? So that's definitely something we tried to collect. So those were data points that we um, gathered from each site, uh, location of injury, you know, which segment, one, two, three, or four, and then also, you know, uh, anterior, posterior, lateral, medial, all different um, aspects of that. We'll 
I still have some um, statistical analysis to do for the manuscript. So in our, our multivariate, we'll find out whether those things um, are contributors or not. How are you detecting leaks? How are we detecting leaks? I think that's a good question. Um, <laughs> I know what it is when I see it, but I can't describe it. <laughs> I have a formal answer for that in the paper. <laughs> I mean, essentially, it is a little bit subjective, I suppose, because it is a retrospective study. and It's looking at patients from uh, 2010 to 2020. And so, you know, we base leaks on... I, I think we said anyone with a leak on imaging. Um, so, you know, we gave them a list of all the sites, a list of imaging where they could have a leak on. We also gave them clinically detected leaks. So if you have drains and now you have bilious output in your drains. So there is several things that went into defining what a leak was. But essentially, it's obviously the at the discretion of the institutions to determine that based on their chart review. The nice thing about the chart review is it's... Uh, the volume of patients from each center is not that overwhelming. So, you know, over the course of 10 years, our highest volume center contributed 96 patients. You know, our lower volume center, some of them only had five to 10. So uh, the nice thing is that I think each chart really did get a very um, thorough evaluation. Did you find, since the study took place over 10 years, did you find that you were getting more of the complex repairs in like 2010, 12, 13, 14, then the primary repairs were more recent? Or was there a difference in time distribution that may have skewed your results? I definitely suspect that. And I haven't looked at the timing yet, but that was, that was my suspicion of what we would find. And then being that it's at the surgical soul and all the associated things around it, the, the pancreas, the major vessels, colon, stuff like that, do you think that concomitant injuries influenced how people dealt with the duodenum? Was there a bias of, well, I'm just going to whip stitch this because the colon's hit, the pancreas is hit, their liver shot. So let's, you know, let's just get out of Dodge and then deal with it later. I mean, just anecdotally, I think that's something I certainly hear from people and have seen um, because you do want to limit your time in the OR and there's other considerations. So I think anecdotally, I've certainly seen that. Um, it's a little bit hard to assess that you know, the thought process and all of that through the data. But I will say in terms of concomitant injuries, the pancreatic injuries, I believe will be associated with higher mortality in, in all the groups that we looked at. Um, so again, we're waiting on the multivariate analysis for that. But just based on what I've, you know, gathered so far, I think that's going to be one of the strongest predictors of worse outcome in patients that leaked with primary repair or with these complex measures. Were you able to glean from the data, you know, early mortality versus late mortality? If, you know, you get your patient through the acute phase, you fix their duodenum, the duodenum has a chance to leak. Then what happens? If you control the leak six months later, eight months later, does this heal up and seal on its own? Do they have to go back in for a fistula repair? What do we tell those patients that are now kind of on the floor with a stable duodenal leak? Uh, that that's controlled. Absolutely. So I think that those patients are actually going to be in subsequent analyses for me because I those patients are of particular interest. You know, I think again those patients stand out to us because they are longitudinal patients that we see. And when I was looking at the data in terms of hospital length of stay and that kind of thing that are is specific to that group, 
there weren't that many. Uh, it was less than I was in, imagining. So I, I do think that it's probably a smaller population than I was originally thinking. The mortality, you said that you had a 33% mortality. Is that right? That wasn't our mortality. That was um, previously quoted for specific for patients that undergo whipples. Uh-huh. Our mortality rate um, was 11% overall for all comers. And then when you look at patients that leak, it was 10%. So pretty similar, actually. So then did you, you know, it's funny, my center was one of the contributing centers. And I did notice with, (laughs) you're welcome. (laughs) I did notice like, you know, you had to go back and kind of read op notes and get a sense of what was going on. One, it made me appreciative of like, oh, next time I have this, I'll be a lot more descriptive of where the injury is. Because some of them were just like, there was injury to the duodenum. And you're like, that is meaningless. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> uh, I really hated those people when I was doing this review. But then, you know, the what I also noticed is there was a lot of people, patient came in, they were in extremis, they were not MTP, they whip stitched the duodenum. Okay, up there on, they came back in 24 to 48 hours. And then on the take back, it, it wasn't often the same surgeon, right? Because it came in at night and then the daytime surgeon took it back and they look at the duodenum like, eh, good enough. I'm not going to take out the stitches. So I wonder how much of this is their patients were bucketed into a repair type based on one surgeon doing it and then handing off to a different surgeon versus if it was the same surgeon, if they would have made a different choice on the take back. Yeah, that's certainly a really interesting question. And it's something that has come up uh, recently in our own department about, you know, kind of the team approach we have. You know, I think there's logistics, of course, as we know, as trauma surgeons as to why we uh, approach our patients in this way, because it's just very time consuming to be in the hospital 24 hours a day. So can you tell me either from your own experience or from what you found in the in your study, what kind of feeding um, and nutrition strategies are people using generally for these injuries? Yeah, so that is definitely, you know, I think that I'm, this uh, project won't stop here after this first manuscript. And so I think our second manuscript using this population is going to look at that exact topic. And so I'm really interested in the nutrition of these patients, the drains, how long they were MPO for, enteral uh, feeds versus, you know, um, TPN. And so so that's really kind of um, some of the upcoming questions that we plan on trying to, to answer and tackle. Technically, are you able to, using the data that you have, determine, you know, is buttressing it better, using momentum is better, or using a loop of bow is better? What, how, how are most of them primarily repaired? You know, it's interesting. I think, again, this is probably more perspective than from my data, but I'd say that my go-to is using, uh, you know, an omental patch um, over the duodenal injury. And that's been, you know, kind of, the technique I've used in, used rather. And it's interesting, West actually has a <clears throat> kind of a guidelines approach to duodenal injuries. And in it, they also reference that. So when I was just kind of reviewing the, the West guidelines for duodenal injuries and, and the management of those, that is something they they mention. Yeah, I'll definitely swing down either a falsy flap or a tongue of momentum up or something just to, I mean, it, why not? So... What are the next steps from here? Because it just seems like doing a prospective study to be able to collect the data on this type of injury would be so difficult. And and I mean, 
Like it would be a, a career long yes. project. <laughs> it would be. <laughs> Unless you're going to go out and stab a bunch of people. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we're, um, you know, we're one of three level one trauma centers in New Jersey. And, um, you know, like you said, we don't have that many per year. You know, we've had a few recently, but we probably only see like three to five a year. So, I think you we really depend on the highest volume centers in the country to give us information about these patients. And so I think that's why a multi-center trial is is the best approach. What did you find to be the most difficult aspect of setting up this multi-center trial and, and what roadblocks did you have? Well, so this was the first um, multi-center trial I've done. So this was really exciting because I felt like it was just a whole new thing to take on for me. And so I think the logistics are the complex part. You know, I think doing any research project is somewhat similar in, you know, uh, coming up with your research question, the protocol, data collection tools, all of that. But trying to coordinate 35 centers recruiting those centers and then the communication with probably over a hundred people when you think about the PIs and then their lawyers and then their research coordinators, you know, that's actually quite a bit of communication and time that goes into that. And so I'd say that wasn't necessarily, you know, challenging in the way that you can't overcome it, but it is just something when you're thinking about embarking on a multi-center trial that you have to take into account. I'd say the the best like piece of advice I would offer someone on, in doing that is organization. I mean, I just I have you know tabs in my tabs upon tabs upon tabs of you know each center, <laughs> each person, and all the email addresses, <laughs> and keeping all of the communications straight. <laughs> yeah. And how much help did you have as far as like your research team? I mean, I, it's not just you, right? Like you have a, a, a team that helps out. Yeah, I'm ex- extremely fortunate. You know, we have um, a great group of people here. Dr. Seaman has always been my mentor since I was a resident. And so he, you know, initially took me on and helped teach me how to do research to start with. And so he was gracious enough to kind of be a senior mentor on this project and help guide me through it. And so I definitely appreciate all of that. And then here at Rockers, we have I have two research nurse coordinators who aren't specific to our division, but certainly help tremendously with all of our projects. And they really kind of manage the IRB process. And then we have our um, contracts negotiator, our lawyer, who um, helps manage the DUAs. Uh, one of my partners, Dr. Teichman, also, um, she's like my my main collaborator. You know, we're we're in it together, which is really nice to have to have someone like that. Knowing what you know now, <clears throat> having done one multi-center trial, would you do another multi-center trial or are you like, Oh yeah, I'm already dreaming <laughs> up the next one. I'm like, I can't wait. <laughs> nice. nice. That's always encouraging to hear. So from this one, what are the, you know, aside from like, we, we know we have a better idea of what the overall leak rate is. It seems like there's a signal that tension-free repair is just better than a complex repair. What are the other things you're hoping to learn from this either through this first iteration or subgroup analyses or like, what are you really looking forward to learning? I think certainly about the nutrition of the patients who do leak and how to manage that nutrition. You know, how long are these patients um, not fed for? And I think hopefully that will, you know, 
to put a concentration onto improving our nutrition of these patients in the future. And then also how to manage the leaks, you know, for those that don't close uh, on their own, you know, what do we do for those patients? And we have one of those patients um, on our service right now. So this is, again, you know, particularly of interest <laughs> in the moment. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I forget, I can't remember if, you, if this was the data point that was tracked, but the the time frame from how long does it take for a leak to manifest? What time frame are you looking for? And then if it doesn't manifest, how quickly can you feed? Like I remember days of NPO versus getting something by mouth and enteral nutrition and all that kind of stuff. Is that going to be in there? Like the characterization of when leaks arise and... Yeah, so we tried to gather data on all of those points, especially duration, um, pretty much of time from injury to leak, time from you know injury to feeding, and and all the different varieties of what feeding could be, and and things like that. So you know, duration of time regarding all of these variables is something we did try and gather. With with a any injury pattern that's sufficiently rare enough that doing a prospective anything is hard. The burden of proof to say this is what you need to do is you kind of have to go out on a limb saying this is the thing you should do, right? even though you're not going to be able to do the study that shows like causation, right? There's not going to be any randomized control trial yeah. on this, at least whoever does that, right. good for them. Could you, uh, did this data and did your paper change how you manage them personally? I think I already was biased to, you know, favor primary repair when possible. And so that was, you know, kind of my thought process going in. So I'm not sure that it's going to change my specific management. I think the follow-up manuscript regarding feeding techniques and things like that and drain techniques, that certainly could. So I think those will kind of be interesting answers as well. Do you think any aspect of... Um you know, the data that you get from this study could be translatable to how we manage duodenal ulcers, for instance? That's a good question. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And, you know, it's challenging because, you know, when we talk about primary repair, the first step of that is really debriding the affected tissue, you know, if there's blast injury or you know, whatever needs, whatever appears a little bit unhealthy. And so when we talk about our ulcer patients, sometimes that can be a lot of tissue. You know, I don't have the answer for that question right now, but that's kind of my first thought is that could come with more debridement than our trauma patients potentially. One thing that just popped into my head is I have never done a primary duodenostomy. That is kind of, in a way, a simple tension-free repair, right? Absolutely. How often did you see people doing that? Like, did you get, was there a lot of people doing that across the country of, let's cut out a portion of the duodenum and sew it back to itself? And do you think you'll incorporate that? Like, what what injuries do you think that's reserved for? I think, to me, that's essentially reserved for... Again, usually when the damage is done initially, you know, if you have a transection, essentially, you know, 100% or nearly 100% of your circum circumference disrupted. I think those are the patients that I would apply that technique to. And, uh, you know, we saw that not uncommonly. I think about an eighth of the patients had that technique. Oh, wow. So that's a pretty yeah. good amount. Maybe a little bit less than that, maybe a tenth or so. But still, that's, uh, you know, it was a, not an uncommon strategy that was utilized. What was the most common strategy? Uh, primary repair. Yes, sixty-one percent of our of the patients had primary yeah. repair. So the 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 
simple repair, the duodenostomy, these all fail really well, which I think is always something that was instilled with me. If you're going to mess with the duodenum, you have to do the operation that is going to fail the best. And it does seem like you start doing complex things, you're just burning bridges, right? A simple repair, if it goes down and leak and you have to go back in, you can still do ruin Y, you can do, you know, you can still do all the crazy stuff. You can do pyloric exclusion, triple tube, that you haven't burned those bridges. Yeah, that's my thought process too. You know, I think that um, it seems like the primary repairs won't leak more and they won't do worse if they do leak. And then you obviously have options for if you need to go back. I think the ruin Y duodeno jejunostomy is a, a good option if you need that. It's kind of funny how like I've noticed a trend in certain areas of injury management that everything is just going towards simpler. Like we used to do all these really complex things and everything is just going, no, just do the simple, just do the simplest thing, <laughs> right? Just simple things work. Just don't, don't try to reinvent the wheel. And this certainly gets to that. Like, just, just keep it simple. Are there any other points or anything else that you'd like to uh, mention or bring up that we didn't hit on? No, just thank you guys so much for inviting me here to talk about this. You know, like I said, this is definitely a passion of mine. It's a super interesting topic. These patients I'm, I'm always really interested in. So I'm just really grateful to East for allowing me to do this. And then also giving me the opportunity to do the multi-center trial to begin with. Well, we're, we're grateful for you for doing it. For, yeah, your results. for sure. Yeah, exactly. 100%. <laughs> Thank you, Rachel. This has been a great discussion. For any of our listeners out there, remember, if you're at East, go to Dr. Rachel Choron's podium presentation over the East Multicenter Trial on duodenal injuries. That wraps up another episode of TraumaCast, brought to you by the Educational Resources Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Visit east.org to check out all the great educational and career development resources we have to offer. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs or interviews. If you're searching for cutting-edge science, professional education, networking, and career development, remember, all you need to do is look to the East.